Welcome to Daily Drive for Monday, April 17th, 2023. I'm Jake Neer, in for Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show, we now know which models qualify for U.S. EV tax credits and which ones don't. The Shanghai Auto Show kicks off this week, and a UAW strike could savage struggling suppliers. Plus, we'll hear from Diana Lee, co-founder and CEO of Constellation, about the ad tech startups' big growth. We went from like ugly duckling, meaning like I spoke to some ventures and I spoke to some PE groups and they're like, the way you're doing it is all wrong. And then the stock market crashes and all of a sudden we are a beauty queen. Everybody wants us, right? I'm like, nothing changed. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Only 10 electric vehicle models will qualify for a full $7,500 tax credit when increasingly stringent critical mineral and battery component sourcing requirements take effect tomorrow, Tuesday. Seven models are eligible for a partial credit of $3,750 under the tougher eligibility rules. Nine previously eligible models will no longer qualify. GM was the only automaker with all of its eligible EVs qualifying for a full credit. Foreign automakers, including BMW, Genesis, Nissan, and Volkswagen, all had vehicles previously eligible for the tax credit. None of their vehicles currently qualify under the new restrictions. But some automakers, such as Hyundai and Nissan, have plans to manufacture EVs in the U.S., eventually allowing some models to qualify for at least a partial credit in future years. Rivian's electric pickups were also removed from the list of qualifying vehicles. You can find the full updated list at autonews.com. This week's Shanghai Auto Show will highlight the growing rivalry between Chinese and European brands. Germany's Volkswagen Group is sending some of its top executives, including CEO Oliver Bloom in a sign of the importance of China. It's the group's biggest global market. Mercedes-Benz CEO Oliver Kalanius will also attend the show. As competition intensifies at home, especially for electric cars, Chinese brands have set their sights on Europe with EVs that have high-tech features and top NCAP safety ratings. SAIC's MG last year doubled its sales to about 114,000 cars in Europe. That puts it ahead of other Chinese newcomers to the region, such as BYD, Great Wall, Xpong, and NIO. In Shanghai, NIO and Xpong will debut Europe-bound EVs. New UAW President Sean Fain has vowed a more aggressive approach to labor negotiations with the Big Three later in the year. That raises the prospect of a work stoppage if talks reach an impasse. Should a strike occur this year, it'll come at a sensitive moment for suppliers. Michael Robinette is the executive director of automotive advisory services at S&P Global Mobility. The situation the last four years has not set the supplier community up very well. And obviously the credit conditions and the inflation and the lack of really running at a strong rate uh, for an extended period of time have really kind of hamstrung the industry. The UAW's contracts with the Detroit Three expire on September 14th. Robinette says in the meantime, suppliers might start preparing for a potential strike by building up inventory, but there's little they can do to limit the impact of a strike. And former General Motors and Magna executive Mark Hogan has died. With GM 
Ogun helped establish the American automaker's Numi joint venture with Toyota. He then went on to lead mega supplier Magna and eventually joined Toyota as a board member under then-CEO Akio Toyota. Ogun was seen as a longtime bridge between the U.S. and Japanese auto worlds. He was brought in as a director at Japan's biggest automaker in 2013 as one of its first outside board members to inject a dose of American business mindset. He was 71 years old. And those are today's headlines. Coming up, Constellation co-founder and CEO Diana Lee joins the show. That's next on Daily Drive. Hi, I'm Pete Bigelow, host of Shift, a podcast about mobility from Automotive News. Each week, I bring you a conversation with leaders who are on the cutting edge of transportation, like this one with consultant and strategist Salika Josiah Talbot. The technologists are forcing themselves in a space that they shouldn't be. And I think the social scientists and politicians are falling down on the job. To hear more about the new technology and policy reshaping the way people and goods move around, join me on Shift. New episodes each Sunday on autonews.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jake Neer with Kellen Walker. Ad tech startup Constellation recently closed a $15 million round of financing. The firm says it's the world's first and only creative marketing technology with an end-to-end compliance solution and built-in verticalized engines. Jamie recently caught up with Constellation co-founder and CEO Diana Lee. He reached her at her office in New York City. Diana Lee, welcome back to Daily Drive. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. We're glad to have you. So you had some big news in the last few months. Uh, You did a capital raise for your company, Constellation Agency. I just kind of want to understand the process and especially maybe in this environment. It seemed like it was quite a while that you were in the process of of, uh, trying to get this done and then finally getting it done. Yeah. So I did not know what was going to happen last year when the stock market crashed and it was literally the worst time (laughs) to actually raise capital. But we went to market somewhere around May or June of 2022, and we ended up closing the $15 million round of financing in uh, December of 2022. So it was a pretty stressful time because the markets were crashing. And there were a lot of people not willing to give cash during that time. Before, right, it seemed like there was so much money flowing into the auto space, into technology, of course, a lot in EVs and batteries and all that. But, you know, digital retail, uh, where you're more involved, you know, was really exploding and was such a hot area. And then things really kind of tightened up. Yeah, it was something that happened that was not something I could predict because money was so easy to get in 2021. And I started to realize how hard it was in 2022 because as I was speaking to some venture firms and PE firms, they were saying in 2021, they made 30 investments. 2020, they made 29 to 30 investments. And then in 2022, when I said, how many investments have you made? They said one. And so... (laughs) It went from all of these amazing software investors out there, that's who we were talking to, that were making 29, 30, 32 investments a year to making one last year. So you raised $15 million? I did. Who was that through? Who can you identify that were key parties in that 
transaction? Yes. So our private equity group that we did the partnership last year is New Light, New Light Partners. Is that just their how they're known? Is that the only way they're known? It's not like New Light Partners, a division of GE Capital. No, 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 no. So they're a private <laughs> equity group called New Light Partners, and they're a boutique private equity group. And so I had spoken to tier one private equity groups. I also spoke to venture at the time as well. And I was kind of not sure about the differences between venture and private equity. And really what I found out during the journey last year was PE typically only invests in EBITDA positive companies and venture are the ones that come in and they're willing to take the risk on you if you are an EBITDA negative company. So companies that are really fly high flying on the revenue side where they're doubling, you know, year over year or more even, that typically goes to venture because of the fact that it's really hard to go up 60, 70, 80, over a hundred percent and be EBITDA positive because most of the monies that you're making is really to for future growth. So you're taking a high risk in order to have a product that everybody wants in the future. So typically that's how ventures are different from private equity. Private equity is more of a stable play, even a positive companies that they invest in. And so you were in the venture group, right? You mean you've been fast growing and you were on, uh, was it Inc, uh, Inc's list a couple of times as these the super fast growing startups? Yeah, so we were number 65, fastest growing company in the U.S. in 2020, number 10 as the fastest woman-led company in the country as well, number seven, fastest marketing company. We won 2021 EY Entrepreneur of the Year. You know, there's always been, you know, people that have been reaching out to us from NASDAQ and even New York Stock Exchange because they feel like we may go public one day, right? And so we've always been on a fast track. But, and this is really funny, Jamie, because people always say, well, why didn't you raise from venture? And mainly because if you are a sophisticated investor, typically most founders in invest with venture first before they go to private equity. But we have always been very fiscally responsible because we took six years to raise our first round of capital. And so because of that, we've always been a positive company because we could never take the risk of running out of cash. And this I actually like say, and it's a funny thing that I said to my husband, is I'm the same company that I was in 2021 as we were in 2022. We went from like ugly duckling, meaning like I spoke to some ventures and I spoke to some PE groups and they're like, if you're growing that fast on the top line, you should be losing a ton of cash so you can even grow faster. The way you're doing it is all wrong, right? And then the stock market crashes and all of a sudden, we are a beauty queen. Everybody wants us, right? I'm like, nothing changed. Nothing about us. The market changed. The trends changed. All of a sudden, overnight, everybody's like, I want even a positive companies. Unless they're profitable, I'm not going to invest in them. Unless they're profitable, I'm not going to give a loan out. You want a capital raise or you want to borrow money from a bank, you must be an even a positive company. And guess what? That was what people criticized us for in 2021 <laughs> at 2020. So even though you were one of the fastest growing companies in your category, you were already kind of a mature company in that you were already cash flow positive. 
Yes, and mainly because of the fact that you can lose a ton of money building software, right? Because you're risking the fact that you may or may not have this word product market fit. The thing is, a lot of founders out there are gambling that they will have product market fit once they make the technology. That's why you're burning a ton of cash. For us, we always basically sold our product and we brought in customers at the same time. And we were very, very careful not to actually hire more employees until more customers came in the door. So on a critical perspective, most of our employees and other people that are associated to us will say, look, it was a lot harder to do it that way because we have to work so much more before we could get the manpower to help us. Because you have to get the business before you can hire. But that is the decision we had to make in order to stay cash flow positive. You've also expanded beyond automotive into pharmaceutical uh, advertising, which uh, is similar in that you have many complicated products and a strict uh, compliance regime <laughs> around it. Did the capital raise help fund that uh, growth or did you were you already doing it and it was part of what made the company more attractive to investors? Yeah. So, Jamie, this is a funny story. I go out to the markets back in 2021. When you go out to the markets to raise capital in the beginning, you see all the warts because everybody will tell you the baby's ugly and the reasons why your baby's ugly. Right? And at first, I had hired a investment banking firm, not knowing what I was doing at all, and decided that I wasn't going to go that route. But when I did meet with some of the investors just to hear what they had to say about Constellation, they said, I don't like the auto business. And I said, why? They said, we don't like the people. We don't like auto. We think that margins are too small in auto. But there was a lot of criticism that we were just an auto type company. We built software for auto. And so that was a decision that we had made back then where we decided, okay, here we go. Investors want to see that your product could work for outside of auto. And we make dynamic creative for the automotive industry and we make it for highly regulated industries, right? And so we have disclosures engines. It's an end-to-end -end marketing system that does creative development in the regulated spaces, right? So auto, pharma, banking, and we take care of all the disclosures, and the engine basically handles all of the compliance needs, whether it be submitting to the FDA or submitting to the compliance teams automatically in automotive. But it was the same problem, whether you're in auto, whether you're in pharma, whether you're in banking, that in the highly regulated industries, you have sub lawyers and compliance teams looking at the advertising before it goes out because they're all worried about the lawsuits that would actually happen. And so when we heard from some of the people, they said, hmm, I don't like auto. At the end of the day, look at the chip shortage. We don't know if cars are coming back. EVs and there's direct-to-consumer sales right now. Franchise marketing is out because there is no marketing with franchises because they have no inventory. There were so many reasons why marketing would fail in auto in the last few years because people did not have to advertise when they didn't have inventory. And even now, it's still the case, right? A lot of dealerships, they're starting to come back to marketing because they realize that they have to compete. But when there's no incentives and customers are now coming in the door and paying $10,000 over a list, 
you don't have to advertise. And nobody wanted to advertise. And so these are the things that when you're in the marketing industry and you're one of the fastest growing companies, if you don't pivot and you're not able to go to other streams of revenue that you can get, your company will and can go under. Because again, in order to have 60, 70, 80, 90% growth or more on the revenue line and still be able to show positive numbers, you have to be able to go to other industries to be able to make up the difference of what happened in the last three years in automotive. Diana Lee, thank you so much for joining me again. CEO and co-founder of Constellation Agency, great to have you on Daily Drive. Thank you, Jamie. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jake Neer, in for Jamie Butters. And I'm Callan Walker. Thanks to Automotive News reporters John Irwin, Adjul Forrest, Hans Grimel, and Automotive News Europe's Nick Gibbs for their help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on automotive ad tech, EV tax credit eligibility, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for Jamie's conversation with Mike Quincy, who has purchased more than 140 cars as part of his job at Consumer Reports Test Program. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.